could talk a little bit, if you don't mind, a little bit about your background. I know I, went, I did a little bit of research. If you could talk, you talked about coming out of like a classical music background and seeing Cecil Taylor when you were about 16 and how that kind of changed your perspective on what music could be, how to play it, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about how you started as a musician, how you even got involved in music, uh, and how you sort of got to where we are right today in like, <laughs> in a, I guess a compressed way, because there's a lot to cover. But I'm just curious, like when we get to this this piece, this first piece you've got for us, um, just if there's a backstory to that you could present to people who don't know a lot about your work. Um. So I guess um, I have to start with my parents because they're both musicians and they're both classical musicians, string players. My mom uh, played in an orchestra in Münster in Germany where I grew up. My dad is still a violin teacher. Mm. And so that was my introduction to music for sure. Uh, so classical music and um, started playing violin first, then piano and... Um, having an older brother who was into playing jazz guitar and I slowly started being interested in improvisation in general, not necessarily jazz, but just being able to sit at the piano and not having um, music in front of me, sheet music in front of me, but being able to play my own music actually, or just being able to sit down and improvise. And then um, there were two things, I guess, uh, at the school that I was going to, there was a record shop opposite, which had a very mixed range of, of, of records. And I was just randomly picking out things. And uh, one of them was Alex von Schlippenbach's um, trio. And at the same time, maybe a year later or so, I was in Prague on holiday with my mom. She comes from Prague. And I saw a poster um, announcing Cecil Taylor playing there. And we went. and. Uh, yeah, that was absolutely mind-blowing for the whole family, actually. <laughs> how, how old were you at that concert at the time? I think 16 or 17, something like that. Just, just a teenager. And had you heard about Cecil Taylor beforehand? Is that why you wanted to go? Or is there something in the poster that made it look interesting? I knew of the name. I didn't, the name rang a bell, but I didn't really know much about him. Maybe I knew he played piano, but that was about it. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was basically just I can't even remember that much about the music per se but more of the energy of um him and Paul Lovens and Harry's Hustrum I think all approaching the stage from different directions him reciting poems uh everything being incredibly loose um structurally and um yeah as you said to to have this I suddenly being presented with the idea, oh, this this is also music. This is also how you can deal with that. And that, yeah, that changed a lot, I think. And then I started, um, I was at a music school taking classical music lessons, and then I wanted to take jazz piano lessons and uh, eventually ended up studying jazz piano in Berlin and Amsterdam. And uh, at that time already, I... Um, yeah, listened more and more into that direction, I guess, free jazz and then more contemporary improv and started going inside the piano and just um, really just experimenting with whatever interested me. There wasn't anyone in particular who showed me how to do it, but for sure I've heard um, 
music from all kinds of um, musicians, also pianists, where, yeah, I just wanted to try out ideas. But I guess what interested me in reaching inside the piano was also a little bit the idea of, uh, apart from the exciting sounds that I could find, the idea that there, there wasn't really a school or um, a teacher to tell me how to do it. So mm. it was really, I'm on my own and I'm going to like try things out. And that was really exciting. And mm. yeah. Because I mean, uh, my, the way I'm familiar with your work, both seeing you perform and uh, on, on record and whatnot is there's a lot of emphasis on pre uh, preparations, on working inside the piano, as well as, let's say, more conventional piano playing. But I really associate you with that approach to the instrument, kind of like rethinking the, the instrument. And that was just sort of an intuitive thing in, in terms of like, okay, there's less guidelines, there's less conventions, it's more like an open field for you to discover for yourself. Is that the main reason you went into it? There wasn't like a trigger, like seeing, let's say, Cecil Taylor, uh, where that like said, oh, this music can be like this too, holy, you know, like a like a open opening up of a door, so to speak. Was there anything like that with, with prepared piano activity, or was it just more like you started gravitating towards that because it was a more free space for you to work in and discover on your own terms? Um, I think a mix of both because, uh, yeah, there, there wasn't a particular person um, initially to initiate that process, but I, th I think it was more listening to music where all the instrumentalists um, used sounds or played with additional instruments maybe that I wasn't familiar with and just to kind of match that soundscape. And then um, finally, when I, I was in Amsterdam for a year and on a type of exchange, Erasmus exchange, and um, played with um, a drummer, bass player, and bass clarinetist, Morten Olsen, Kunutis, and Carlos Galvez. And we rehearsed a lot and played a lot and was really trying to match each other's sounds and trying to figure out what we could do with our instruments. And um, they also had um, lessons or meetings and discussions with Michel Mengelberg. Mm. So that was also a huge influence, um, mainly yeah, his spirit, really, and his attitude. Nicole Fuller, who was also oh, okay. in us at the time, who very generously uh, gave me a lesson and who was also very influential in that way. Um, yeah. Well, maybe maybe we could listen to this first and afterwards, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear what the experience with Mengelberg was like. He's a hero of mine. and. You know, finding out more about him with people that got to study with him and work with him, like yourself, uh, that would be amazing. This, this first piece—is there any uh, any things in it that you want to talk about, or should we just go to it and listen? About the piece, uh, all of the pieces were kind of in the spirit of playing live and not giving, like, as if it was a concert, just in my living room and just pressing record and going for it.
Before we went to the piece, um, you talked briefly about getting a chance to study with Cora Fuller um, and also uh, with Misha Mengelberg. And I wondered if you could describe a little bit. I mean, Misha Mengelberg's such a legendary figure in the history of, of improvised music. Um, and uh, yeah, really a game changer on a lot of levels. What was it like to have a chance to, to study with him a bit? Like, and how maybe did he impact the way you thought about music and, and the way you play? Um, well, I was uh, hesitating saying lessons before because what he was um, teaching at the conservatory in Amsterdam was counterpoint. Mm. And he made a point that it wouldn't be individual lessons. You could come and take counterpoint lessons, but at the same time, there was a group of people of maybe sometimes two, sometimes 10 that would be in the class and improvising and playing while the counterpoint lesson was going on. So it, was, <laughs> really? it might seem very chaotic at some stages, but he would always be involved and comment and the lessons were really mixed like that. And um, one hour lesson would then turn into a two hour conversation afterwards over coffee. And it was maybe that was the most important uh, yeah part if you want so him being incredibly generous and open-minded and really not dogmatic at all about the music that was going on every once in a while interjecting and playing with us and so yeah that was very different to the um conservatory education i had in the previous years and then just being able to actually yeah, play. I mean, I've heard about him obviously before and then being able to play for him and have his um, opinion, but him being just so, so generous about it all and just encouraging. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Do you remember any conversation or conversations in particular um, that could kind of be an example of the sort of things you discuss, uh, you know, let's say over coffee after like the quote unquote regular lesson, just how he impacted your thinking in any kind of way? Um, not a particular conversation, no. Um, I think what I, I mean, apart from his, his spirit and generosity and musicality, and also how he mixed the traditional jazz with um, freer forms uh, of improv is, uh, Yeah, he kind of expected there to be constant var variation in the music, so you couldn't sit down and play your thing, which I I really liked. That was really a, maybe a game changer for me, that it was all about constantly being alert and, uh, yeah, trying to make a thing and repeating it or, you know, not be being in the moment and being focused. Um, <laughs> you recently... Um, meeting about you and you were working with the class in a, in a very different kind of way and how that might be similar and different um it's now about nine years ago i think or ten years ago that i started playing it but i would actually also say it's recent because it takes so long to mm. to get used to a new instrument and to feel actually really comfortable with it um so and because so many venues don't have pianos, uh, ramp pianos, maybe initially it was this practical thought of maybe we can 
find something that's more, um, you know, transportable, but not just a keyboard instrument and the, the clavinet has strings. Uh, so initially, uh, I thought that's, that's the same approach, you know, keys and strings. Mm. Um, maybe Tony had seen Core Fuller use one, that might be, because I know that he's been playing that as well. Um, and so I bought one on eBay and um, yeah, then I think basically maybe three weeks later went on tour with it, just trying to figure out how to use it. Mm. Um, Mixed with pianos, of course. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's completely different. I think it's, it actually sounds more like a guitar, really like an electric guitar. I open it up so I can access the strings and those strings I can also prepare with or, or directly access and then prepare maybe with little things like magnets or um, pluck them or mute them or um, um, yeah, all sorts of things. Or so use a plate of slate on them or anything you would on a guitar, basically. Um, the access to the strings is, is a little narrower, but at the same time you have the keyboard to um, to treat the strings as well. They, they kind of have little um, what do you call it, rubber tips mm -hmm. that uh, touch the strings. And so, yeah, it's a, a mix of that. But first of all, it's amplified, so that's completely different. Uh, it has these guitar pickups there, so that's something to get used to. Mainly, not only sound-wise, but for me physically, because the grand piano is so massive mm -hmm. that it's physically quite straining, getting from one corner to the other and leaning over and standing up. And the clavinet's really the tiniest movement makes such a big sound already if, if you want to. And uh, yeah, adjusting that, just the physicality of it, um, it's a big change. And then uh, sound-wise, uh, it was also a change because of the amplification and the uh, much more noisier um, sound worlds that that opens up. And yeah, so in, in the end, it uh, ended up being a completely different instrument. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm super glad I started. Uh, yeah, what you're doing, I think, is amazing. Like, I, I, I couldn't believe the sound and the variety, the, tom the timbers. Like, it was so, and like you said, it's like such a smaller contained instrument. And it was like, like this orchestra stuff I'd never heard before. I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a show with Meta Rasmussen, and we were, and she was talking a little bit about playing through a PA. Like normally, let's say playing acoustically more or less, and then going through doing rock shows with Godspeed Black Emperor, and then being in this giant PA and being really loud or playing with louder rock bands, and and the saxophone being, you know, not self-contained. This is I'm making the sound, but the sound is coming out of a PA next to me or out of monitor. Like it totally changes the sound spectrum. And and Metta talked about being really excited about how different that was, the different kinds of energy it led led to. Do you find that in a somewhat similar way with the clavinet, having it be an amplified instrument that you can deal with different volume levels? Uh, in that way, um, do you get to different kinds of sounds? And you obviously, it's a totally different instrument than the grand piano. But is there something about that aspect too, the electricity of it, the amplification of it, that you find exciting? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The volume level that you you talked about, definitely. Um, although I must say, I mean, with the piano, I also prefer to be amplified most of the times, just to to match levels. But it's still, I mean, it's acoustic. It, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's a different kind of thing. 
so yeah, that makes a, a big change. And then um, I find myself um, playing very different material. Um, as you said before, I, I with the piano, I'm really inside of it a lot, even though I use the keys to produce um, the sounds inside as well. Um, I kind of, yeah, I would say focus on that quite quite a bit, although I might go back to the keyboard a bit more in the future, I don't know. But mm -hmm. um, that's what it is now. And with the clavinet, I really feel sometimes it goes into, um, yeah, quite harmonic, bluesy uh, areas where I feel more comfortable on the keyboard, maybe because it's so detached from the grand piano tradition, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So that allows me to be more more free harmonically. Mm. Um, yeah, for no reason um, really other than it's just different to the grand piano. Yeah, yeah, it has a, it has a uh, like a, I mean the history of the grand piano is so many, <laughs> it's so long, you know, and there's so much, uh, different. I mean, so much different kinds of history there. So like to have it off your back in a sense, you know, yeah. an instrument that doesn't have that same, yeah, that's, a, that's liberating for sure. something where John Tilbury was talking about the uh, uh, preludes and sonatas, the Cage prepared piano pieces, and how, you know, Cage has these very strong specifications about where, what, what type of object, where it needs to be placed, and all these kinds of things. And Tilbury was saying, you know, yeah, that's true, that's important, but also there's a lot of flexibility in there in terms of the accuracy because you can't really replicate. It's not so specific that you can actually replicate it exactly the way it's meant to be. So it changes. Like the, the preparations don't sound exactly the same every time, even though there's a lot of rigor about how it was organized. Do you find, because a lot of the preparations, like you talked about the clavinet, but also uh, with the piano as well, like the years of research and development of getting sounds, figuring out how to make them, you have your, your own set of like tools, you know, you could see them on the piano. Uh, that you've, you've accumulated that's like part of your your yeah, your toolkit almost in a way. Um, do you find that when you encounter, because every piano is going to be different, even if it's, a, it's a, a, you know, a Steinway D or whatever, another one, it's going to have different characteristics. Do the preparations that you've developed and your approach to those, that vocabulary, does it radically alter based on both the pianos that you, you deal with and the acoustics of the room that you deal with? Or is it pretty not uh, loose is the wrong word or is it like you have a pretty good understanding of what's going to happen if you do x y and z to this for this particular preparation you're going to get this compound sound 
pretty accurately? Or is it sometimes you do something that's like, whoa, like, because you're improvising, you, you go for something you think you're going to get a certain kind of feedback to take place, sonic feedback, and something completely different happens. How, what's the balance on that? Um, yeah, the, the fact that it's a different piano every time is um, it's really both frustrating and really I also really enjoy it. Mm. Because of the things you mentioned that can happen, like all these surprises or I do a thing that I'm used to doing and I think this will happen and either it doesn't work or another sound comes out or it's simply not possible because of the layout of the, the piano. Um, I mean, in a way, I've practiced so much with these uh, tools or, or extensions or instruments, um, the objects that I have, and I take them with me that I know them very, very well. And I think it's, it's about spending time with those um, objects with many different pianos that you get a feel for um, how they work, just the physicality of it and uh, their weight and their shape and things like that. Um, and I think they kind of tie uh, the connection between the many different pianos. You know, they are the fam familiarity in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not that I set up the same way every time um, that I perform. Uh, even if I lay everything out, be because the difference to John Cage's preparations really is that it's um, a set of flexible tools. I can remove everything within seconds while the sonatas and interludes, uh, I think John Tilbury told me that it take like three, four hours to prepare. It's yeah. insane. So <laughs> it's really a fixed preparation. And then, um, yeah, that's that's for that piece. Or mm -hmm. yeah, That's one thing that, that amazed me the first time I saw you perform. I think the very first time I saw you play was with Great Waitress. Mm -hmm. And I could not believe how fast and flexible the preparations were. I mean, it was... It was it was mesmer. I, I just kind of sat there the whole time, like wondering how you could do it. And obviously, it's it's all the work and everything. But to have these uh, these these immediate changes, you know, it, it is like a total. You you turn it into a complete um, uh, instrument. Like the the preparations themselves are like an instrument on an instrument. You know, and somewhere I, I read an interview with you, and you said, you know. It, it can't be a gimmick, you know, and this certainly is not. I mean, like you, you've you've integrated these things so thoroughly into the into the flow of, of the, the the work that you're doing. It's it's really really inspiring. And as a person who doesn't play the same instrument at all, but it made me think a lot about extended techniques for the the reed instruments I play and how do I adapt and move rapidly through these sounds that I like. So it just becomes like a flow and not like okay, I'm preparing to make the sound and now it's too late. Like the right. delay in that, the cause and effect, it's gotta be like, just like nailing it immediately. So you're not even thinking about it. It's just part of your, your approach, part of your language or whatever.
I'm going to move to some questions from some uh, listeners who tuned in uh, and hand it over to their queries. The first one is from Kevin Counterpulse, and he asks, I would love to hear about Magda's experience working in the surround multi-channel in Los Angeles. Um, I'm trying to remember if I played a concert using multi-channel uh, amplification in Los Angeles. I, I was there on a the residency in 2016 at Villa Aurora, and I know that I started playing um, with a quadraphonic setup then, but from memory that was just at the residency. Um, and then I started developing it a little bit. I think it was a bit because of that um, question you asked earlier, Ken, how I interact with um, space or if it's um, different every time. And I guess with the piano and playing inside of it, you're with your head inside the instrument. And I always felt like I have that one sound experience that maybe the audience members or definitely the audience members don't have. Um, and so the amplification, but then, um, I, yeah, I started using a setup where I'm in the middle of the room and the speakers are in each of the corners of the room. Um, yeah, and I've, I've done a couple of performances with that since since then and also using some um, playback tape of, of um, kind of compositions that are made out of past performances. Um, so yeah, like, like a sparse tape um, that goes with it. I started that in LA. I don't know if that was the question. <laughs> Oh, no, definitely, definitely. And you've been working with, with pre-recorded materials, like tapes and, and whatnot, since then? Yeah, a little bit. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea, I called them like a series of compositions I just called memory pieces, where I recorded myself in that setting in different rooms with different microphones, sometimes wearing them in my ears, sometimes having them in the middle of the room, and then composing small, very sparse, pieces out of them and they are played back through the four speakers and then I interact live with it. Um, yeah, I just found that interesting, kind of more like a study. It started being a study for, for myself just to see how, how I listen spatially and um, how I play and interact with the space, I guess. And then, uh, yeah, I started using that in performances as well. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's amazing how how like opportunities like that, like the chance to do it, suddenly opens up all this other stuff, mm -hmm. you know, that you might not readily um, accessible to the equipment or whatever it might be. And then how like how do I actually how I listen, even if it's to my you know to my you know, and it's it's rare to get a chance doing like kind of a, a research, and then apply it to your own uh, evolution of of stuff. It's so cool. And do you work with let's say pre-composed materials like, you know, uh, uh, more conventionally notated material, like, you know, a composition on, a, on, on sheet paper or whatever, or just uh, preconceived structures, or are you primarily working as an improv, creating materials through improv reconfigure in the group spill, or do you ever compose things in a more conventional way and then use those materials in performances or with groups? Um, I feel like I've only started doing that recently. Um, so with Spill, I would say the studio really functions as a tool for composition. So we might have an idea in mind and um, work with uh, layering different 
yeah, working with different layers. So um, separately and together and having yeah ideas beforehand and then really composing them in the in the studio with lots of improvisation. But um, like that, those are not notated though traditionally on a on piece of paper. I have um, tried to do that though for um, Ensemble last year, where I've worked with a photo score. Um, I played in Wells last year in November with a bigger group of, of um, yeah, Roger Dravis and Angara, Zina Parkins, lots of harps and strings and two mm -hmm. cellos. Um, I felt that with eight people, uh, that it would be good to have some kind of structure, especially since we never played together. And yeah, so that was still very loose, but at the same time also not. Um, it, it was a photo score that I guess, yeah, it wasn't noted with, with pitches or harmonics, but it had kind of a clear idea or instructions to it. So I don't know, I might go more into that direction, but it's not that I do that a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel that the the objects or preparations or the way I set up is a composition as well to choose to have certain materials there. Um, that can determine a piece. So sometimes I think about using one or two things or starting or ending that way. Conversation you talked about the impact of, of getting a chance to study a bit with Cor Fuller, with Misha Mengelberg, and I know you work as a as a teacher as well. And I wanted to see if the teaching part of your activity um, is really important for your creative process, or if it's a separate pursuit. That I mean, obviously you've been doing it for years, so it's it's significant. There's no question about that. But is, is there like a feedback loop in terms of like you discover something through teaching, you're trying to explain an idea, a concept, and then you realize something that you hadn't considered before in that process of teaching? Or is it more like separate from your, your creative work? I feel it's really all mixed, mixed up together. Um, one thing informs the other. When I uh, started doing this, um, well, maybe it started with being interested in researching things more and um, uh, doing radio documentaries on certain on topics or um, music-wise, like on the Echtzeit music scene in Berlin. I've done one on the Beirut scene a um, couple of years ago and uh, just going more into that and starting to conduct interviews or, or Researching that led to me wanting to do a PhD and research more the prepared piano stuff and um, timbre in general. And um, then you teach simultaneously and you play concerts simultaneously. And I don't think you can really um, separate those things. It's all in your head. And um, yeah, I definitely think about all those things at, at once often. And uh, I learn a lot from teaching as well, of course. Um, 
there's lots of ideas that that then come back and that I think about and um, try to research further and so on. So mm -hmm. it's all definitely all mixed. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a full process. Yeah, a lot of layers, that, uh, like, yeah. like the music. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, unfortunately, and I definitely want to make sure we catch this third piece. I have one more question, but we've got one from the chat group of people listening that I'll get to. Uh, this is from Hawk Lover, King of Sex. Is the album title, quote, The Setting Sun is Beautiful Because of All It Makes Us Lose, uh, a statement of hope? Statement of hope. Well, it's a quote. It's from uh, Atto. So I would have to then say my interpretation of it. But yeah, I find, I find it definitely very positive. Um, it's not, it, I, yeah, that's how it but it's not my my statement. <laughs> but but you but you shared it, so that that counts too. Uh, and my last question is, um, you just mentioned taking this quote uh, from somebody else. Are there other art forms, other artists? Um, let, let's let's say outside of music, that have uh, impacted you in the way that you approach what you do, or that just inspire you to do. To challenge yourself, however it might be, or you're mostly focused on your your inspiration and resources coming out of uh, creative resources coming out of uh, the study of music. No, not only music for sure, but I can't give you a single uh, name now or like one specific person uh, where I would say they influenced me particularly. Well, okay, let me rephrase it: Is there, are there is there another art form or art forms uh, that you tend to gravitate to? Like, for example, I love film. I watch lots and lots of film. And I know that that affects the way I think about how I construct my own music, um, even though it's n not, you know, one-to-one -one ratio of, like, this happens in film and then I do it in music. But I definitely get lots of inspiration from filmmakers. Is there an art form, like, uh, if it's literature or painting or something that you... You, resonates with you in a way, even though it's outside the, your activity, uh, creative activity. Spontaneously, I'd say photography. Okay. Um, something that I've always felt quite drawn to. Just, I mean, not engaging myself, but just uh, observing and taking in. So, yeah, just because of, I guess, all the detail that's captured and all the different angles you can can look at it, even though it's a fixed medium. Um, Oh, okay. But yeah.